Hello and welcome. My name is Johannes and I am the host of this show. Today I am here with Richard Thickpenny, who is, um, who is an independent consultant in funding and strategic partnership managing. He is a visiting fellow at the University of the West of England and an engaged scholar at Aston University. Uh, he is at his own company. He's the director of corporate social responsibility at the, the new Penny LTD. Um, Today's topic will be his unique contribution in technology. He will be uh, explaining uh, a bit about, um, uh, about, about what that is and then what, what, what it is used for. And it is based on the concept of the digital, digital twin. Um, and it has to do with helping refugees, which is a topic that's quite close to my own heart. So um, uh, without further ado, please, Richard, could you tell us a bit about what what digital twin what what this concept means it's it, it's floating around there we hear about it a lot digital twins digital twins this digital twins that what is it exactly what the digital twin approach will be in the context that i'm using it is it's actually a new way of, of actually engaging with refugees and the knowledge that they have so typically um under jeep European general data protection rules. If if you engage with somebody, take data from them. That data then has to be sort of almost preserved and and kept safe from other people's use, and that's controlled by the person who asked the question and received the data. Um, and what that means is the individual, the refugee who actually gave information about their past or what they plan to do or their views on any service, that data is taken from them. They have no control over it and no further voice with its use. So what we're looking at is is actually creating, in essence, virtual refugees. So the using the digital twin approach, um, allowing an organization to create their own metaverse where the refugees that they're working with can actually interact in a virtual world and that digital twin will actually hold um, in effect as much data as the individual wants the digital twin or avatar to hold and how they're being created or how envisaging them being created is using um, a range of social science questions, so you've got the responses to those, and then, then that being supplemented by the individual themselves with further contextual data. What you then can have with that digital twin is a contract for the use of that data. So what it does, it turns a person, the refugee from being a passive provider of of data to other other people to actually being in control of the data that they, they give and through contracts that digital contract that goes with the digital twin allows um, it to be for part of co-creation of, of projects but it also allows um, for crypto tokens and other um, other benefits to accrue around the data. So the individual creates an avatar of themselves, the digital twin. An organization like a university or a university student who wants that data engages with the avatar, the contract is agreed using a crypto wallet, and payment is made either by you know, tokens for services like gym membership, actual cryptocurrency or 
other types of services. So the aim of it is to actually foster long-term engagement with data provision rather than a, a once-in-a-lifetime provision of data. Mm -hmm. Which can be then traced over long periods of time. So you can, you can trace the refugee with this data as well, right? So this could open up some, some issues as well, right? Or, or am I reading this wrong? Um, because it's on, on blockchain, what, what you'll get is a, is a lot more security. So I've spent time um, I, with, with an, another university, I've spent nearly a year going through the implications of just taking data from a refugee and, and holding it in relation to a home office project because of the UK's hostile environment to refugees. So this this approach um, actually puts the control of the release of data with the individual rather than the organisation because the traditional method would be an external somebody from a university or an external agency taking the data, you know, questioning the person, taking personal details, potentially anonymizing them, but then it's, it's held in an institution and within their systems for five years, 10 years, 25 years, depending on, on what their ethic systems sort of dictate. So where is this one held? Is this a sort of data wallet or... Where, yeah. where does, oh yeah, so it is a data wallet. I, I well, it, it, it will hold within, within, within a Metaverse that is linked, linked to the, the blockchain. So, so but, but the refugee so, herself is, is in control of it, right? Is, is yeah. that right? Yeah, so, so, so it's, it's, it's their digital twin. So there's, there's a template twin is created and then um, the refugee is unable to sort of populate uh, key data points within the avatar or within okay. the digital twin. And so what, what advantage do they gain from that by doing this? I, I think when we were speaking earlier, you were saying also it, it would help their, them uh, in, in building their career more strategically. Is, is, that, is that right? Is... Yeah. What, what, it, what it allows in, in many ways is by creating metaverse with, with other individuals you've got an exchange of data that the individuals can um, use their avatars and then to communicate with each other you can populate the metaverse with um with, with videos with with um sort of online courses and lots of interactive experiences so the individual can learn through that but what it also means say for the the universities and those researching currently they can access very few refugees and you get um basically overuse of, of certain individuals oh could you so could you explain that a bit more <clears throat> what do you mean by that within populations there's, there's, there's some people who've got the time and the inclination to attend focus groups mm -hmm. So they become regular candidates for focus groups. Mm. So therefore, inform all policy and papers and articles that go on mm. from that point. Yeah. Okay. But what you also get is if the story is a really good story that the refugee has, that um, the interviewer can become really empathetic with, and uh, you get um, a lot of exploration of trauma. Mm. So the refugee then, whilst actually giving out lots of information, can ultimately trigger the traumas and PTSD from their past experiences. So this this approach allows a sort of arm's length of distancing from trauma. So it means key bits which people would want to keep asking about, oh, what was your journey like and this and the other. That can actually just be done once. I see, yeah. Okay. But then also, 
but, but isn't there this problem? Okay, so I, I I read up on a bit on the blockchain because I've been talking about it recently with with guests on this show. So there is this potential well, there's this critique of it that is that the data will live on forever, right? So if you are putting up something that you then regret having put up, you you can. Or, 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 you know, in, in some ways also when there are vulnerable people, because refugees often fall into this group of vulnerable people, people can put something up about them into the blockchain and it's impossible to take it down, right? Because it, it, it lives on forever. But that's, that's already sitting there with lots of images and that. Anyway, so what we're looking at I suppose as much as anything is that there will there's this downsides with the data and hopefully with it with the use of blockchain it's more secure there's more integrity around it and there's more sort of transparency on, on how the data is moving around so that the one of the reasons blockchain's been created and where it will progress is that level of security and integrity that isn't there with with existing systems so with with the existing situation then yes somebody would hold a focus group or a one-to-one interview and would hold data and that could be kept insecurely by a researcher and end up who knows where so once the initial piece is through and that person is actually in control, then yeah, yeah, we've all tweeted 10 years ago and looking back at it, it may not read well and things like that, but at least with this, the individual can actually keep amending their data. So let me ask you this. So, so just to be sure, when when you can uh, when you when you have this digital twin um, technology in your possession, if you're um, if you're a refugee, you you can add data to it, right? But can you also take data out of it? Because the blockchain has this permanence, right? That that data cannot really be taken out; it can only be added. Is that correct? Um. Those aspects are not that, that sure at the moment. It's one of the reasons for doing the visiting fellowship. So what I've been looking at primarily with the digital twin components is initially around creating a, a, a metaverse in which it, it can operate. So you can do it by organization by organization, but ultimately that information can then go onto blockchain and be passed from one agency to another. Yeah, so, so what I've been looking at, what, what I'm working on in terms of the digital twin component is is actually sort of sitting within a, a local metaverse. So um, I, I work with a, a number of different agencies. I've created a, a metaverse between the agencies in which refugees could create their own digital twins. And what that... Because the problem you'd have at the moment, if you had 20 agencies working with 100 different refugees, each agency could be working with the same refugee, but would hold different information about that individual, which would have been sampled at different times. So, so actually, you end up with like a really sparse, dirty data sets, which are not very usable. So, so the problem I've been looking at is actually how you put the data in the control of a single person, you know, the individual itself, so that it can disseminate or be used by the different organizations, so the individual in control. And what that then allows is, well, if that's happening within that group, well, what happens if that individual goes to another area so if it just stays in one metaverse, in one local piece, that same problem exists. They've got to like start a fresh creative thing. So the blockchain would allow that transportability for the individual from location to location. So they could, they could initially 
say, be in a camp in Lebanon with NATO, and then they can sort of transit through Europe, and at each point they could use a blockchain to access their own data. So they could use that avatar as a receptacle for qualifications and their own past life. As they come into the you know, new countries and settle, they, then they can add into that and add and prepare for their own future life. So that avatar becomes their own sort of receptacle for, for knowledge. Yeah. Like the contract, um, the, the crypto wallet piece allows them to provide, you know, to open and unlock information for different organizations and the blockchain would allow that transportability from from one place to another so that, that's that's how in, in vintage it within this um yeah in, in terms of this, this sort of solution and this sort of i see use. so it's it's really basically allows them sort of their own linkedin tools in a way it's it's a bit like it, it's, it has a sort of a LinkedIn element to it, right? So the uh, career building element, if I understand it correctly. <clears throat> you, you've, you've got you've got that component. Um, so yeah, you, you can do all of your digital badging and, and build within to it. But what you've also got is because they are refugees, are sort of research subjects. It allows them to capitalize on, you know, on that on that part of their life as well. So, yeah, so, so, so they'll have a personal use for themselves in, in terms of what they want to accumulate into that avatar and use this receptacle. But it also allows them to create you know, a monetizable data set that can be that can be traded with researchers or other organizations. So what I'm, do, what I'm doing with the visiting fellowship will actually be looking at what type of questions that that avatar would respond to. Could you expand on this a little bit? Like, what do you mean by questions? So, that, so um, there's, there's a large amount of study into refugees around their mental health, mm. around their employment aspirations, um, sort of issues, you know, what happened during the asylum process, what happened through the flight from home country. So there's, there's a lot of um, sort of the, the social science type questions that people are, you know, research agencies are exploring all the time. Mm -hmm. So that would actually be built into the structure of the avatar for, to allow it to actually interact. So you could go to it and go, well, what was your journey like? Oh, I see. So it's autonomous. And there'd be a set of information. So, so will it be autonomous from the person then in that sense? That's different from what I understand the digital twin to be in a way that it, it, rea it, it acts on its own. That component I'll still be exploring, but that would be ultimately you could build it, that sort of chatbot autonomous component. So that would be what the individual could actually release in the contract. There's the ability to interact with, with key things because a lot of, Social science and that questions are very similar. I see. Ah, uh, yeah, right. So it answers on behalf of these of of the refugee, so that the refugee doesn't have to actually bother with it. And not only that, but also because the yeah because of the traumatic aspects, as you mentioned before, they might not want to talk about these things, but they they might also want to let people know about them. Why not wanting to talk about them personally again? So I see that is a really great. That's that's certainly great functionality. <clears throat> Interesting. Very. I mean, and, and what I'm looking at it. Yeah, go on. Uh, what, what, what I'm looking at it, or around it as well, is 
So c- currently, um, using design thinking, you could you could focus group with a number of refugees, and you could create a persona which you would use then within the design of a service. So that's very point in time. And then over a year or two, three years' time, the relevance of that lived experience of that individual in that those individuals that created that um, design persona, yeah, it starts to become irrelevant and redundant and outdated. This approach I'm hoping to be able to do with it is allow that ag- sort of essentially ongoing aggregation of data so that the design personas could actually alter over time as as variables change within individuals' course, lives. Right. They should, right? I mean, if, if they're digital twins, they then they should. I would assume they would. If I understand digital twins too, yeah, yeah. In, the so, right, so, in, in that way, correctly. And, and it is that actual... That, that digital version of, of, of the real thing that you would use as an engineer when, when you're looking at, at systems where you're getting that constant feedback, this is a, a mechanism where there's the potential to actually create continual system feedback. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah, speak some more on that. I think that's interesting. <laughs> It's um, I I think it's it's going to be quite the key component because if in in New Zealand they've been looking at projects for um like basically all of the government funded projects since like nineteen fifty so they have a an actuarial approach to funding design so they they know that if they if the project that has these components and it works with these types of people then the results like that so that's a that's a that's a government making best use of its money over time and sort of getting best value for money i'm looking at it more from the customer perspective as well so there's there's a big move in the uk currently to build lived experience into into service design and that's either by having focus groups or staring groups that pe- feature people who are using the service, so like the refugee service, thing, or employing individuals from the refugee backgrounds because their knowledge of the refugee journey can inform service design. Whilst that works, it's, it's still very fixed in, in that moment of time. So the lived experience as a refugee from 20 years ago is entirely different, say, than the Ukrainian refugee experience in 2023. You can't just have an individual who's been a refugee having lived experience. If you're designing a service, you can't have outliers because you could have had an Iranian um homosexual professor who'd been you know, seriously forced out of the country with his whole family sort of being held to ransom who could have lived experience of being a refugee compared to an Aaron Train 19 year old who's fled um, national service of course, yeah. and has had to very different things for sure what's yeah but but services are actually being designed on that basis with that very sparse outlier data sets. So you you always hear about the taxi driver who was a doctor in their home country. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I yeah. heard about it. Very, 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 very limited global data that supports that doctors end up as taxi drivers. But it's, a, it's accepted that refugees, some of them are doctors and are, are taxi drivers. You know, this. So this, this sort of, by encouraging more people to take part by having that cryptocurrency, piece, you're getting more 
data coming in and it's being refreshed and you, the system isn't then reacting to outliers, but is actually reacting to you know, what's happened, what is truly happening within the system for the majority of situations. So again, there's, there's some philosophical arguments around that. There's some ethics around that. It's like, do you ex then exclude the outliers once you've identified that they exist? Or does that mean that you then have the information that allows you to provide services for outliers and those sort of more operating around a norm? Right. It, I guess in the, in the era of personalization, it really makes sense to to extend this idea of personalization which we have in consumer culture all you know all over the place um to to refugee services and that's if i understand your work correctly there is something in that vein to it right there is i've seen over 20 years working with refugees i've just seen so much standardized approach that's there's actually um, white middle class solutions to the problem so the last sort of five years has been moved towards the lived experience bit which is an idea of well we don't know really what we're doing but what we'll do is we'll bring in some more people yes. a, a different type of person which will give us a bit more knowledge and then hopefully that makes it work rather than actually what do people what does a customer really want from service what happens if we provide a service like this how can that service be improved how do we move it you know, how do we say for example you know, we're in the west there's plenty of opportunities yeah there's there's a broad range of salaries people can settle up how do we get people into a position where they can actually make best use of those opportunities. Well, if you've got 200, 300, 400 people regularly feeding information in about what's happened in various situations, now, you can then create a service that provides the solution for the customer, the person whose life you're actually trying to direct for the next 40 years of their working life. You're actually getting comprehensive feedback from yeah, the, the customer using service as opposed to, well, in 2020, we interviewed 15 people. Yeah. And this okay. is what they said. And this is right. how we made the service. Yeah, that makes sense. So this this is a this is a really innovative and new approach to this problem, um, using all of this blockchain technology, digital twin technology, and so on. Uh, do you think it would not be possible to do this? You know, so I just want to ask this as a as a sort of devil's advocate. Um, you know, would that not be possible without all of this fancy technology? Could you not do it um, with websites? And you know what, whatever exists sort of in the in the Web two world or in the world that we that we know of, um, generally still. Um, what what is that? What is it that the the, the oh, okay? You, you in some ways you answered it already in in the way that you know the 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 privacy issues and so on. But is there is there anything that's really glaring that that really needs this approach of blockchains and crypto? I mean, you, you could do digital twin also without without crypto and and, and blockchain, correct? Is that you can you could um, you know Salesforce and things like that exist. You can aggregate stuff on that, but currently all of the systems are in control are in the control of others rather than yeah, the individual. So there's no democracy in it. The, the system, how it operates, you know, as soon as you put data into Web2, anything like that, it immediately gets controlled by GDPR. So the individual loses their data straight away and can never get it back. So you have those aspects. 
There's also um, actually around creating good services. So, yeah, we're a quarter of the way through the 21st century. Yeah, blockchain's already quite a few years old. Okay, the use cases are only now coming onto the system. But I was on, I was working on actually building the internet around 2000, 2001. There were no uses for any Web2 at that point. Yeah, it could have all been done on by paper and pen. So yeah, you can get around it, but just the sheer complexity of ensuring an individual can get their data shared between three or four organizations to improve a service yeah, means that yeah, the current systems just aren't um, just aren't viable for that, and that's why you end up with such disparities in service you know, between organisations and, and across countries. So this is a, a way of, of actually putting. I, th I think it's probably the only way that you could guarantee integrity for individuals to have control. And you can. Are you sure that you can do it with this technology? Because you know there there is critiques by um, luminaries such as Tim Berners Lee, who who brings up this you know these problems with the data permanence for one thing. So there is is a sort of a lack of privacy once it's you know because it's public actually. So right, the blockchain is is public you know, and, and so once the data gets on there, you can never scrape it off. And the other issue, but but, but it's, it's 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 been provided contractually. So there is, yes, there's that permanence of, of the web, which yeah, may only be five years if we go into a nuclear situation around things. It, it could be for another thousand years. So yes, there is permanence. But there's also, even that permanence may be restricted because the data storage requirements for the internet are growing so massively. So you have those issues, but there's also, it's more to do with that, um, the integrity and security component that you get with it that allows you know, that individual, if that data goes out and is there permanently, well, at least they've received something for it, whereas and they, they get residual payments. Yeah, if the data is sold, again, they'll, they'll get money from that. So they, they will maintain a type of income from that data because that's what the contract will say. In the small group of organizations, scenarios, it actually allows sort of the crypto or yeah, the crypto tokens to be used as well. So you've actually got tradability. So the individual is trading knowledge in return for something, which he can then trade as an NFT. So, so I was talking on this so point, you know, before we get too far from it, I was recently speaking to um, Yasmin Alduri um, in Germany, and she she pointed out this potential issue with that, right? So if if you have if you have poor people um, who can, or if, if you can make money, let's say, if you can make money on 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 lack of privacy or, or on your data, okay, then in some ways privacy could become a luxury and and that sounded a very that sounded like a stark statement you know that i was kind of uh, taken aback by and, and it, it it seems but it seems to be true right so if if you're a poor refugee and you want to make money on your data and you must or you must make the money on your data because you have children to feed or whatever it is that you're that you're struggling with versus someone who's more economically independent who can then afford this privacy, will this not just contribute to some other new form of inequity in privacy, in other words? I think that's, that's in the philosophical world. Yeah, everybody likes an Elon Musk. Everybody likes a Tesla. And you know, you've got a bloke who's made a massive amount of money from... Data and various things. Got Twitter for more data. You got your Zuckerbergs and 
and all of that. So in Web 2, every website I'm going on is harvesting stuff from me, and I have no very little control over that. You know, in, on European websites, you've got the uh, you know, re- reject or accept this, that, and the other, but there's still essential data being harvested, you know, I'm using Edge and Chrome and things like that. This stuff just being harvested all of the time. So actually, there's currently there's like ten or fifteen people in the world who have made vast piles of money from just harvesting data. No integrity, no security, no transparency. I don't know where my first tweet lives. I don't know where my first Facebook. There's, I don't know where Friends Reunited or Ancestry or anyone. I don't know anything about where that data is and where it ultimately will end up. Will it be free range on the internet? Yeah, I've got, I think my oldest stuff there is on like 2006. But there's some other things that were on websites which have disappeared. I don't know where that data is now. So the blockchain will or it aims to offer better security than what's currently there in terms of data. Who ultimately controls the blockchain? It's meant to be more, you know, a more distributed control system to what it is currently. So this, this, this risk with rogue nations and that, you know, I don't know. We're holding a conversation at the moment. I don't ultimately know where that the server is, where our bits of data, you know, where our bits are actually flowing through. Yeah. Is it in Germany? Yeah. Is it in San Francisco? Is it in Riga? Yeah. We don't know, and and we don't know what will happen in any of those areas. Yeah, we don't know what will happen in, in Riga in ten years. So we don't know. Whether California will split away from the US, oh, wow. <laughs> taking you know, global data. I, I don't yeah. know. I think that's an unlikely scenario. So, so if, I'd be surprised actually if that happened. No, but, but, but the what if yeah, world. No, right, right, right. Yeah, that, that ultimately, the, the, the data ultimately sits on some form of memory device somewhere, or a large number of them, and you don't know what the encryption is around. Yeah, those those data devices. So the blockchain supposedly has a higher level of data security than current systems. But uh, uh, so the, these critiques, have you read them by, uh, or have you come across them by by Tim Berners Lee about the blockchain? Um, namely, you know that it's not so that there is this privacy issue that it's also not fast enough and not cheap enough. I think those are the three points, if I remember it correctly. If, if I am saying this wrong, please uh, comment in the comment section. Um, but I think I, I, I haven't. I oh, haven't I read it. So I think it's, it's just I, I haven't read it. You know, I think it's those three points basically that that they are not cheap, that they are not fast enough, and that they are actually not private enough. So so that these three things, uh, you know, that they're solid, um, uh, is 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 an alternative to the blockchain. I don't know if you are aware of this. Also answering you know sort of questions in the same area you know there, there's this question of you know what should be called web 3 i i was talking to yasmin alduri about that topic and that's not really defined very well at all and and so they're competing paradigms still you know aside from the blockchain have you explored any of those alternatives I haven't yet, because what I've been looking at is more around the actual the creation of, of, of the concept and an actual shift in the way that that data sort of develops. So that creation of the digital twin component, because ultimately what I'm looking at could actually be a, a single server solution. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it could be a housing association with the 2000 tenants where, yeah, with, within their communications, within their interactions with their, with their tenants, they can create a metaverse for them to operate within. So 
for me, the blockchain component, it isn't a, a life-threatening part of the system. It's, it's, potentially, it's potentially an enabler to allow you know, an individual's movement around the globe and maintenance of their own data in that aspect. That, you know, this is right to point out, has got lots of errors. Or, yeah, there's holes in the system at the moment, just as there was when I started to use the internet 30 plus years yeah. ago with, with the dial up. Yeah. I remember those myself. And I think it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually doing the f your first online bank banking using yes, yes. the disk. Yeah, what put, and having to put those in. So, Berners-Lee and I, but you're right to point out that in, in, the, in the new system, there's great big differences compared to the system that he created. So yeah, but you see the problems that came about in the system because originally, um, you know, if you look at the web, originally it was decentralized, right? So like you, you had your server at your house where you would put your website up and then you would run it 24 seven. If you wanted your website to be up 24 seven, it would be on your computer. And uh, so, so there was no, it was in that way really quite decentralized. And then what happened is it, it was sort of captured, I want to say, by the big corporations, right? So in, in a way, one thing that they didn't see, I think, and, and they talk about this, um, you know, so I mean, by they, I mean, um, you know, Jaron Lanier and, and Berners-Lee and so on, and, and, and other early internet pioneers. What they didn't see is this, this now in hindsight everything is obvious right so the, this this point that compute power computing power and data also free free data access right basically if you have free data access somebody can capture it somebody can grab it right so if the data is out there somebody can grab it and centralize it and then if they have a, a, a monopoly on compute power because if they just accumulate most of the compute power then in some ways they can centralize the internet right they can they can do what they did and, and so that's why it's not decentralized at this moment, right? This is how it, how it turned out. And, and some of it has to do with efficiency also, right? So this idea that if I want to build a website now, I will not actually want to put it on the server in my house, but I would much prefer to put it up on using, using Amazon Web Services or, or, or Google Web Services. Um, I tend to use Google Web Services, other people use AWS, but the point being, that that's much easier. There's a lot of infrastructure there that you can use to to wield, you know, an enormous amount of, of, of compute power if you if you just want to rent it for for a moment or whatever. If you want to do some kind of uh, machine learning calculations or something like this, it's quite easy to do. And so the decentralization has its like you know, so the centralization, as I'm coming to find out through these conversations, also part has its advantage in in some moments, right? So it's 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 um it you know in this collaborative economy approach where you can just buy compute when you need it you can put things up right so there is some advantage of of centralization right that 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 complete decentralization will then lead to these kind of problems we had in the early internet and could you address this and and why is that not similar to what actually was the problem with the original internet in terms of efficiency I think it's yeah, with, with all of the technological advances. There's, there's those component. There's those periods in time where it, it doesn't it doesn't work. So the early internet didn't actually work exceptionally well until money came in, and allegedly it's because of like yeah, the access to porn. And allows revenues to develop, which allows more computers to be bought and it, to build up. So there are, and I, I, you know, I, I worked on building the infrastructure for the internet and the amount of sort of dark fiber, yeah, just fiber and multiplexes put in place, waiting essentially the development of the smartphone for them to be used and economically viable. I think that's where ultimately the blockchain argument will rise or fall as 
is there a viability around it? So the the likes of Discord and Roblox, those where you're creating communities of interest that sort of congregate around a server, is that going to be efficient with 8 billion people globally? No. Ultimately, it's, it's whether those, those bits that are traveling around the system equate into money for somebody. So at the moment, all of the wealth that comes from the internet is sort of held in a, a few people's hands. The distributed model allows essentially a great expect, expansion of the internet with a larger number of people making money from it. So is it fair that there's, it's like seven mega trillionaires, there's like 30 or 40, but that's, that's, that's ultimately what will, will happen or there'll be, you know, an American internet an African internet, you know, the European internet, you know, with some sort of linkage between them. Yeah, it's, you know, you've got a potential for a community of interest, nation state version of the internet. Oh, wow. So you, this, this is in some ways, it would feel like a bit like, like going back, right? Because um, nation states, in a way, you could say that the internet has enabled us to get a little bit past that system or uh, at least pretend to. And and then what you're saying is that if, if nation states get their own internets, then I would feel like this is a step back into into a world. That... Or it could be instead of a nation state, it could actually be sort of like a, a global state of um, union around sort of like a key concept. So climate activism could take on its its yes, own yes, right. part of, of the web and things like that. Community so, groups, basically, like interest groups, could could take the place of states. Yeah, but but they could become yeah, larger sure. and larger, and, 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 and sort of a nation state size worth of interest. Yeah, in I a, see that. That makes sense <laughs> because you've already got you know, so countries like Wales and. In Scotland and the smaller European countries, yeah, they have populations like one to five million. It doesn't take yeah. long to build a community of interest like one right. to five million. Yeah, a number of it. Yeah, social media influencers already have more. Yeah, the Kardashians have more people interested in them than there are populations yes. of countries. Yes. <laughs> the Kardashians. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very strange one. <laughs> I think that uh, I think it was it was a Bill Maher who pointed out that you know, many more young people are interested in the Kardashians than they are in what Greta Thunberg has to say. And in that way, there is they are the generation of of the Kardashians and not the generation of of Greta Thunberg. Which I think he and I am hoping that we would be the the that that they would be the generation of Greta Thunberg. That's an unfortunate thing. Materialism seems to still rule. But it, yeah, it's, it's like a, a days gone by. Each nation would have its fleet of ships and go onto the high seas. Yeah, whether those sort of like communities of interest would go on the high seas in the future mm. to take control, you don't know. But that's yeah, there is potential for that. You, you've seen it with like just yeah support around Trump, you know, um. where you actually have got a belligerence coming into into data and control of information. Yeah, yeah, that's really uh that's 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 a dark so, subject. So that's not the area that I'm going to be working no. on. <laughs> no, they can't. yeah, let's bring it back to that. <laughs> um, so so <laughs> in terms of these refugees, so uh, you know when uh, how many are, are you already working with refugees currently on um le uh, having them use is this already something that's being uh deployed at the moment or is it still in the research stage i i haven't got it 
deployed yet, but what I'm hoping if I've got my initial funding applications in, so what I'm looking at is actually testing it without technology to begin with. So looking at a sort of developing a fairer exchange of knowledge. So um, I'm looking at a couple of projects with community groups and one of the local universities around actually in exchange for knowledge that's coming from the community or in, in return for that, that information, they'll have access to um, digi digital badging modules, digitally badged modules from the university so they can yeah, they can provide information. I'm looking at um, vaccine hesitancy. So looking, so information we get from the community in relation to their views on vaccines, that's provided in exchange for um, digitally badged modules around leadership um, and other areas of interest for the individuals. So actually building in the, the, that trading component and and looking at the ethics that go around that that trading component, and so I can then actually start building up the question, yeah, the, the template questions, and that does sit within each of these. So when do you expect that um, that there will be the first refugees who can take full advantage of of a let's say a prototype, or, or when when will you have a prototype that yeah, you know you will wheeled out there probably not until yeah probably not until later this year as concept there's, there's, there's quite a bit of just just actually building up something that, that's relevant mm -hmm. and usable but as I say that's what the visiting fellowship and the engaged scholarship components are for because it gives me access yeah. to the academics and those working in the field that allow that to then be built up. absolutely I would be very interested in following your story with respect to that. And perhaps you could also come back at some later point and tell me about your successes and failures, you know, and, and what you've learned basically in the process. That would be very interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm expecting quite a few failures. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of learning I think needs to be built into it because it, yeah, as I said, it, it is. It's quite a significant use case, and there's yeah, there's lots of ethics around it, and, and just operationally as well. Um, I'm, I've just had had my fifty eighth birthday, and I was talking to somebody in their twenties the other day who was just astounded to come across an old person who actually knew about using avatars <laughs> and NFTs and blockchain, <laughs> which shows what that's that's a major hurdle to overcome because mm -hmm. even to to start developing it within organizations and that there's a lot of work just on bringing people up to speed around mm -hmm. a simple thing like an avatar yeah so the with um Aston and others, there's, there's a lot of work now on, on creating virtual company avatars right. as well. So again, there's, well, so, there's the individual component. I, I wanted to ask you one more thing. I, I wanted to ask you a few more things, but, but I wanted to ask you um, with respect to when you're saying lots of ethics, could you just give us a, a, a maybe the, the most difficult or the most puzzling problem that is in that area of ethics with respect to the digital Twin, com uh, um, I'm sorry, technology that you're wielding out, and and you know, what what is that? You know, what is the most complicated or what is the hardest problem in the ethics area? What you, how things have been operating is that there's been a big move to decolonize research, um, remove racism from research, remove othering from research. So. Essentially, it's it's trying to make that sort of the methods of research sort of fairer, more more equitable, and and less um, power orientated. But it's still an extractive 
process. Yeah, there's, there's a subject and you get information from that subject which informs your thesis, which is then published as, a, as an article. So having the individuals in control of what they provide into that system shifts the power um, quite significantly because whilst the individual can currently say yes or no to answers that, it's still the organisation is is in control of the whole, whole process. There's no trading currently. It's occasionally that some money will be found to provide um, a, a payment for the focus group. But, the, but it's all taken away. This, um, so what you have with this is the ethics of paying somebody to provide you with information, entering a contract where you're obliged to give them residual funding as, yeah, as, 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 you, as you make and use that data more and more, you know, there's residual payments being made. And is that an appropriate use of, you know, of university funds or government funds? So, it's like, so there's that component of, should we really be paying for this? Because what, what if they lie? It encourages people. Yeah, it's the, it's the selling the kidney type scenario. You, you mentioned it before. It's like, well, you've got a poor person. Well, they're going to give more and more and more and for, for money. Looks yeah, like a poor. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, you could, you would say that. I mean, yeah. well, no, we're, 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 what we want is to is to get as much as we oh, can right, for free. Right. Okay, yeah, that's also a problem. That's a, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. It's 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 a yeah. You can use it, it's in a way sort of like an ethics washing that's going on, right? It's sort of to say. Oh yeah, we don't want to make these poor people get money from us because then maybe they'll depend on it or something like this. It's, it's a sort of, uh, but in reality, it's really about saving saving money. Okay, I understand that point. <clears throat> so it's it's not really an ethics problem then. It's, yeah. uh, maybe it is, but it's more political problem. It seems. Yeah, it's it's, it's within that framework, and it's like who, who controls that decision to. For, to be an ethic or or a political, yeah. We, we've got. I just was just recently in Los Angeles, and I decided not to to go to the Getty Museum. The Getty Museum had a superb exhibition of Sudanese gold and stuff, and it's like, well, I could go all the way to this place. There's a whole. You know, Getty died whenever he did. There's a whole set of people curating it and using his wealth. And it's like, well, what a patronizing situation. Some person made a load of wealth by selling yeah, a commodity that's helped destroy the planet. Put that into a trust fund so he could educate people and things. And a whole set of people curating stuff around that education. And it's all like really, really nice. It seems like a good concept, but I looked at it and thought, well, why? Why, sh why should I bet you go to this building because of this man's wealth to learn something that's been extracted from? That's you know, that's concept. true. It's just really always the paradox mm -hmm. in New York as well. You go to the Met, you know, beautiful Metropolitan Opera. And it's funded by the Koch brothers, and it has the you know their name on it, and so on. It's always been a little bit of a, um, a problem for me as well. I can see where you're coming from. But the Getty Museum is beautiful, yeah, and that's what you get getting. Is <laughs> I like the, the Getty Museum, nevertheless. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> but but I agree. It's. I, I spent five days. Yeah. Well, it's it's still. I spent five days on Santa Monica Pier every evening because that gave me more insight into the wealth of humanity than I would have ever got going to like one man's yeah, wealth from yeah, no, It's a very interesting place for sure. Uh, Santa Monica, Venice area. I spent 
so uh, many years there in fact <laughs> so I, I i'm quite familiar i went to santa monica college before going to colombia so uh, yeah i was i was living in 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 that area for quite some time i'm aware yeah and it's you know, those ethics and, and, and politics you know, with the getty thing everybody believes it to be a really good situation because it's the whole purpose of it is to like but isn't that also educate. true with all the royalty stuff here in england yeah. uh, you could you could uh, okay i think no they're there to subjugate us they're there to subjugate us <laughs> but okay i think we're wearing <laughs> off a bit but by uh you know to bring you know maybe a bit of a conclusion to to what you're doing what what are the the Okay, let's let's start with this. You know, where what is your fear of what could go wrong in in your research coming up? What would be the most catastrophic sort of to your research or to your work uh, with respect to this work that you're doing? I think that the the biggest piece will actually be around actually getting a, a buy-in to the approach because. So, so much, you know, you've either got researchers extracting or you've got services which deliver stuff, you know, they have beneficiaries. This approach actually creates, you know, a customer and a supplier. You know, because you're supplying information that to improve the service that you're going to be a customer of. So it brings in a new relationship. And I think that that new relationship with that with that customer supplier will need to be pitched and you know the approach sort of carefully curated to make it into an approach that a university or a large housing association or something would would actually see as being a beneficial approach that adds value and improves the way that they're doing rather than being the replacement to something that's broken yeah so so there's a, a, a there's there's a, a dance that has, you know, there has to be a sort of very careful way that you do that so i'll be developing it with academics and that moving it from academic academia into a use case for blockchain conferences and then actually a real life use that's sort of supported and sustained that has a, a lot of, of just pitfalls which is I suppose the same with, with most service and product designers there are lots of people who felt having large lumps of ice being brought down from Alaska on ships and that was the way to make ice cream. That's funny. Right. So, so then let me ask you yeah, a little bit more of a hopeful question. What is your, what is, what are you really, what, what is your biggest dream associated with this, um, with this project? What, what would you really love to love it to look like in say a year from now, five years from now and so on? Ooh. So in, in a year from now, I'd like to see the, the, the concepts actually be in a position where it can be actually demonstrated, avatars operational in a metaverse. That would be good. Five years' time, I'm looking at developing a, a, a number of, of new um, projects around cultural entrepreneurship and and I grow entrepreneurship, which are designed to empower women and, and and create a lot of change in relation to sustainable development goals. So in five years' time, it'd be nice to actually have a to have completed a whole demonstration case that actually you can use this methodology to create dynamic personas. What have I called them? Yeah, the di dynamic digital personas, which which you can use for actually f flexing service design and and, and maximising impact. So it's it's a solution that can be 
Yeah, it has a lot of those um, ESG mm -hmm. type components to it. So there's a, it, it sits within that marketplace for impact. Right. So within that five years, Tyler like it to be sitting as I would as a, as a solution within. I would really love it if you could, you know, within, you know, the, you know, as you, as you're making your progress and you're, you're hitting your milestones and so on, if you could check back in with me, you know, on, on the show and tell us all about your successes, that would be a fantastic, uh, fantastic way to keep, you know, keep every once in a while, maybe, uh, seeing what's, what's going on and, and how things have gone. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to do that because. So I'm, I'm, I'm approaching my 60s. This, this is my sort of like swan song <laughs> project. So I'd, I'd actually like to to get it out there. So even, even if I've firstly failed to achieve it. Well, are you working with, with a team or is it all, do, all on your own? Are you working all on your own? I'll be working with... Um, a team of academics. So I've got access to a team of academics to, to feed into what I'm doing. I'm also working with a, a number of organisations and frontline organisations who are interested in in the work. So they'll actually be essentially working with me on, on the wireframe of what it will, will look like mm -hmm. and, and what the process journeys and things like that can look like. So, yeah, It'll actually be developed in, in principle from from live organisations. Mm. Great, and that that has that, that's of interest to universities because yeah, I've already got the organisations ready to, to to trial with. I am very interested in this project. I am very interested in you know new innovative ways in which we can help people, specifically vulnerable people. And uh, you know, ref and, and refugees particularly. Um, so I, I am I'm very happy that you're doing something. I would love to see where it's going and how it's developing. As I said, and you know, it's been a really fantastic time talking with you. And I think uh, you know, I don't have any more questions for you. Uh, but if if we can keep the que the conversation going as shows come up that are related, maybe you can find some inspiration or. You can, you know, leave things in the comment section and keep keep uh, in touch with the show. In other words, that would be great. I think. <clears throat> okay. Yep. This show is published every Wednesday at 5 a.m. on the East Coast, 2 a.m. on the West Coast, and 10 a.m. in London in the United Kingdom. If you haven't done so, please subscribe so that you can keep up with the show. Give us thumbs up on videos that you enjoy and thumbs down on videos you don't enjoy. And please tell us what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy so much so that we can improve. Next week, I will be meeting with Dorothea Bauer and we will be discussing the democratization of AI in its various meanings and what that means ethically. Well, democratization has become a popular term not just apply to AI, but for basically meaning giving people access to. And so that means making it democratic or democratize it means uh, spreading out AI so that anyone can use it. And that's how democratization of AI is used. And I'm not a big fan of that use of the term. <laughs>